Bibles ready. So we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, today we're going to have a serious, uh, which all uh, Bible studies should be serious, right? But um, I guess sober might be a good word or somber. Um, th- this is serious stuff we're talking about here. Um, we have been, in this class, we've been learning about Jesus in the Old Testament. We've been asking the Holy Spirit to open our spiritual eyes so that we can realize that everything in the Bible is about Christ and that it all points to Christ. And so we take the Old Testament lessons we learn in the Old Testament, we see Christ in those lessons, and we apply them to our lives today as well. And so it helps us to have a Christocentric view of the Bible, which means the Bible is Christ-centered. Um, I look up here on the board beside me here, and I see a couple of obituaries of some past residents who have been there who have died. And uh, just this week, uh, a young man lost his life uh, that we know that, that, that we have worked with, and um, it's heartbreaking. And so I want you guys to understand how serious this is. You are in a battle for your life, yeah. your physical life. And just because you come here and get away from your home territory and you flee from your problems for a little while and you focus on God and hopefully you get your life right with Christ, it does not mean that you're not going to go back out there into that world and be tempted again. And without the help of Christ, without His strength, without His truth being buried deep in your heart so that you might not sin against Him, without that in you, you will fall, you will fail. And I want you to know that some people that come here never know Christ. They play the game, they do their eight months, they get out and they go home. And there are some of those people that have went back out and fallen back into their own lifestyles and they're back in their old patterns and they have died. There are some who have been here who actually do know Christ. And I want each and every one of you to know that today as we look at the life of Lot... As we look at the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we're going to understand that even we as Christians are going to struggle with sin. And unfortunately, many of us will dabble with sin and many of us will again get burnt by sin. And I want you to know how serious this is because if you are a child of God, there are actually verses of Scripture that tell you that He will kill you and take you home to be with Him as opposed to let you live an ungodly life. And so this story about Sodom and Gomorrah is something that we need to apply to the world around us. The story of Lot and his family is a story that we need to apply to our lives because no matter how much we try to to coat things over and make things look nice, the Bible never coats over sin. The Bible never makes light of sin. The Bible shows us what we look like from God's point of view and there are no holes barred. He allows us to see all of our ugliness and all of our sin and all of our wickedness. And we read some of these stories in the Bible. You read the story a lot. You can read on your own later on how he has an incestuous affair. His own two daughters get him drunk. And they, uh, he impregnates his own two daughters. And it's an ugly and vile and terrible story. But we look at those kind of stories, and the point is not to look down on Lot and his daughters and go, ooh, look how ugly they are. The point of those stories is to show us what you and I are capable of, too. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all sin is ugly to God. 
And we need to remember that as we get into this lesson today, okay? So uh, we'll open with a word of prayer. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 19 today. We're going to be studying the doom of Sodom. Genesis chapter 19, the doom of Sodom. Let's go ahead and pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day and this time that you've given us together to come and study your word. And Lord, I will be the first to admit in front of every man and woman in this room that I still struggle desperately with sin in my own life. And there's not a single one of us in this room that are perfect except you, Lord. And we need you. We need you to help us to see our shortcomings, to see our sin, to see our flaws for what it really is. And we pray... Holy Spirit, that you will grant us repentance to turn from sin and self and to turn to your truth alone. So be with us in this hour. Help us to turn to that truth. Help us to see that truth. Help us to receive that truth. Help us to believe that truth and give us the strength and the willingness to walk in that truth and share that truth with others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to go ahead and read the story for you. And and then we'll go back and break it down. Now remember, we're looking for Christ in the Old Testament. And for the last three or four months, we've talked about how God is a merciful God. You know, that God is loving and He's forgiving. Is He not? Right. But the same God that is merciful and kind and gracious is the same God that judges sin. And we need to understand that He has the same... He, God is immutable. Uh, he does not change. So his attitude towards grace and his attitude towards sin is the same. And he doesn't let anybody slide. If it were not for Jesus Christ and hanging on that cross and taking the wrath we deserve, we would all know that wrath in our lives. So God is both merciful, but God is also just. And we need to always remember that. There are so many people... And many of us in this room could be accused of being guilty of this ourselves. Paul puts it as walking, trampling underneath our feet the blood of Christ that was shed for us. You remember how at the Passover, how they, they put the blood on the side of the door and over the top of the door. And when the angel of death passed over, he would pass over the home. If he saw the blood, he would pass over. Right? Well, you notice that they did not put blood on the floor. They just did it on the sides on the top. And the point being is, is that Christ has shed His blood to save us. We are His children and we are not to step upon that blood and count it as nothing. Every drop of that blood was spilled to pay for mine and your sins and to save us and to give us eternal life. And we're never supposed to take advantage of that. God is a merciful God, but God is also <coughs> a just God. <clears throat> In the life of Abraham as we've been looking at that, and the life of lot we've seen how god works in people's lives and if you've noticed if you'll take your own time and read maybe genesis 14 to 18 you will see this continual downfall of lot lot and abraham abram their 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 uh crops and their their animals and their uh possessions was so big they begun to fight among themselves and so abraham said well, let's separate our two families you go the way you want to go, and I'll take whatever you don't take. And it says that Lot looked down upon the land and saw that it was beautiful. And so he went after that that was beautiful to his eyes. And, and if you'll notice the story, it says he camped uh, looking out over Sodom. And then the next ver couple of verses later, it says he was camped at the gates of Sodom. And then he was in the middle of Sodom, living there and among the people. 
And so you see this downward spiral of Lot's life. He walks away uh, from his family and the faith of Abraham and begins to wander into sin and to the world. And so that's what's been going on. God has come to Abraham and told him that he was fixing to go and destroy Sodom. And remember, Abraham was worried because he knows who's living there. His son or his nephew and his uh, great nieces and etc. etc. And so he's worried about that place. But now God is sending these angels to do what they promised that they would do. The wages of sin is death. We need to remember that. It says this in uh, Genesis 19. Now, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down his face to them to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside in your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, However, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly so that they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who have came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway, and he shut the door behind them and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man, please let me bring them out to you and you do with them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men in so much as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else do you have here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke up to his son-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to the sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, they said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. But the Lord said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Now behold, your servant, if your servant has found favor in your sight and you have magnified your loving kindness which you have shown me by saving my life, but I cannot escape to the mountains for the disaster will overtake me and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to and it is small. Please let me escape there. It is not too small that my life may be saved. He said to them, Behold, I grant you this request also not to... Uh, Overthrow the town with which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive. There, therefore, the name of that town was called Zoar. 
The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of that city and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Right? So now we're going to go back through and talk about this story. The angels go down into the city. And the first thing we notice is hospitality, right? One thing that children of God are supposed to be is hospitable. What does it mean to be hospitable? To be inviting and welcoming to aliens. Remember what uh, uh, God said to the Israelites? He said, do not treat an alien badly because you were once aliens in Egypt, right? So... uh, Hospitality means to be inviting and welcoming to those who are not like you. Right. Now, remember, Jesus ate and and uh, hung out with sinners, didn't he? Right. But he didn't hang out with them to endorse their lifestyle. He hung out with them to call them out of that lifestyle. Right. Je- Jesus hung out with sinners, but he didn't. He wasn't a sinner. But he hung out with them because in that hospitality, in that kindness towards them, they would see the love of God at work. And then he would call them to repentance. He would tell them to turn from their sin and their self. And so through that love, through that mercy, and through that hospitality, uh, it was an expression of God's love. And so remember, we got to understand that Lot is actually a child of God. Um, we're going to look in a little while in Second Peter. We're going to look at that passage in just a few minutes. But in Second Peter, in that passage, especially if you have a King James Bible, it says something like, Lot, his soul was vexed by living in Sodom. Well, what does that mean? It means he's a child of God. He has the Spirit of God in him, uh, on him, around him, guiding him, convicting him. And yet, because he lives in the world, his soul becomes vexed. Vexed means to be confused and not capable of being productive. Uh, And so, what we're seeing here is, the further that Lot gets away from God and faith, the more he indulges himself in the world, the more vexed he becomes. But, even though... He is a child of God, and even though he is caught up in the world, there is still a part of him that wants to be hospitable to these people. Now, if you notice, it said that he was at the gate. Now, who remembers what happens at the gate of a city back in that day? Does anybody know? The gate of the city was where all the local politicians and all of the people of power would go and do their business. And like make land deals and, and etc. Make sales, do business. Kind of like barber shops are today, right? Or, or, I don't know, a local pub or something. It was a place where all of the, whoever was would meet there uh, to, to hang around with other people, to rub shoulders with other people in the city that were powerful and influential. So to see Lot sitting at the gate, we know that he is what? He's entrenched in the society there in Sodom. He's a part of that community now. 
And so it says, Lot notices these two men, these two angels come to him. And he said, come to my house and wash your feet. Right? Uh, spend the night, wash your feet, then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we will spend the night in the square. Now, can anybody see Jesus in that passage? Do y'all see Jesus in that passage? What about, about what about washing feet? Yeah. He was a servant because he would wash Yeah. Y'all remember the story about the the woman who was crying on his feet and she took her hair and washed her his feet with her tears. And then Simon the Pharisee, the religious guy, was sitting there going, "Man, if just Jesus really knew what kind of woman this was, he would never let her touch him." Right. And then he said, "Simon, I got something to say to you." He said, "I came to your house. You didn't offer me any water to wash my feet." And yet this woman is constantly washing my feet with her tears. Those who love, uh, those who have been forgiven much, love much, right? Those who, who, those who have been forgiven much, love much. And if you're in this room today and you truly understand the forgiveness of God, one of the clearest indications that you understand the forgiveness of God is when you're willing to share that forgiveness with others. Even the people that have harmed you the most. Now, you don't have to go be their best friend, but you have to let it go, yeah. right? <clears throat> and so I, I can see that he's talking about washing feet. Uh, so he urged them strongly. They turned aside with him. They entered his house. He prepared a feast for them and baked what? Unleavened, Unleavened bread. Now, how do we see Jesus in that? Uh, Passover. Passover, right? At Passover, they would prepare unleavened bread. What was it to remember? Well, the actually the Passover was not a remembrance of Jesus's body. It was a remembrance of what their deliverance from where Egypt, right? Right. And why did they use unleavened bread? Well, today for supper I ate the the second half of a uh, Papa John's pizza that I bought yesterday. And I ate half on Monday, and then today for supper I ate the other half. Put it up and heat it up. And the reality is is that I love the crust. A lot of people don't like the crust. They tear it off and don't eat the crust. But the crust is good. It's puffy bread, right? And where does that puffy bread come from? It comes from yeast. And it takes some time for that yeast to rise, right? But unleavened bread does not have yeast in it. It doesn't rise. Why? Well, the point that they were making, that God was making with the Israelites was, you're not going to have time to sit around and let the bread rise. You're going to have to cook it. It's going to taste not good. It's just going to be old flat unleavened bread right uh, how many of y'all had wafers at, at church for communion right they don't usually taste too good do they uh, how many of y'all have ever had people serve you white bread right right you had white bread like they cut it into little square it's, it, it feels kind of weird to eat that white bread done it? it's like this ain't what like Passover bread is supposed to taste like we do a really cool thing at our church at, at my church we have communion every Sunday we do communion every Sunday uh, and there's a purpose behind that but uh and I am a Baptist. I'm not a Catholic or anything. I'm actually a, a Reformed Baptist. But we do have that table every week because every week we come together with the rest of the members of our community, our church. And the way that we take communion is we all stand up and go forward and we take the wine and the uh, the bread from the table and go back and sit down on our seat and then we all take it together. And so one of the things that the pastor always does before we get go and take the bread and the wine is he calls us to repentance. He says, you need to be thinking about what you've done this week. You need to be professing your sins to God, uh, confessing your sins to God and asking Him to forgive you for those sins. And to remember that this is the body and blood of Christ that was shed so that you could be forgiven. Mm-hmm. 
And so then he invites us all to the table. He said, I'm not asking anybody that is perfect to come to the table because none of us would be able to come. All of us have sinned. But we recognize our sin and we recognize that it was the blood and the body of Christ that was shed for us that gives us that forgiveness. And so we go forward and they play a pretty little song and everybody gives them a walk down. And then you see all of the other family members, all of your family members, all the men and women who are saved, born again believers, or professing believers, all get up and go forward. And it's a way to hold yourself accountable to your brothers and sisters. And one of the things the preacher always says is, if you are under the discipline of another church, do not come forward and take bread. Well, what does that mean? Well, a lot of people get in trouble. They, they mess around with the preacher's wife or a Sunday school teacher or something, and they get kicked out of their church, you see? That happens. It's called church discipline. When somebody's living the wrong way, the elders of the church will call them forward and say, yo, you, you need to straighten up, and if they don't straighten up, what do they do? They, they disfellowship them. They ask them to leave. And so a lot of people leave one church and just bounce around to another church, find another church to go in and, and poison. And so one of the things we do at our communion is say, if you are under the discipline of another church, you need to go back and be corrected and admit your wrongs to your home church before you come forward and take communion. Because remember what Paul says about communion. You can actually eat it to your own damnation. Like there are many people that take communion they get sick and die. Why? Because they're Christians, but they're not dealing with the sin in their life and they're just constantly, they're professing before everybody else that everything is okay in my life. You see? And so, again, the Passover does definitely reflect towards the the new covenant meal uh, uh, and the Last Supper was a Passover meal. And then Jesus basically turns that into the new covenant meal that we take known as communion. But the bread was unleavened bread. And unleavened bread was unpuffy bread. And as you read all the way through the Bible, you'll constantly find this theme about unleavened bread. And what it, what it symbolizes is the lack of sin in our lives. When you get sin in your life, it puffs you up. It makes you think you're better than you are. It makes you look down on others instead of looking in on yourself. It makes you puffy like leavened bread, you see. And so unleavened bread is a theme of purity. It's a theme of being pure. None of us are without sin, but through the shed blood of Christ and through His broken body, we can have that forgiveness that we need. And so I I see Christ in that unleavened bread. All right, so let's go on. He urges them to come in the house. Um, Before they sat down, so the men of the city surround the house, both the young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they start banging on the door and calling out a lot and saying, "Let send those two guys out that were with you. We want to have a relation with them. Now, it wasn't talking about we want to sit down and have a conversation. Guys, please understand that the, we get the term sodomy from the city of Sodom. That it was a sexually debased city. And there was homo, homosexuality and, uh, and lucid sexuality was rampant all over that city. And these men are literally beating on the door saying that they want to have sexual relations with these men. Bring them out to us so that we can rape them. That's what they're saying. Now, to help you understand a part of Lot's peril here, uh, the guest host relationship in the Mid-Eastern culture, Middle Eastern culture, was very precious at that time. A man was judged and deemed worthy on how well he could take care of the guests that stayed in his house. How many of y'all remember the story of um, the Iliad? Do y'all remember the Iliad? 
Y'all see Troy with Brad Pitt in it? Right, right, you've seen that movie. Well, it was a it was a story written by a guy named Homer, and it was a story about the the wars between the Greeks and the Trojans. And for ten years, the Greeks went and uh, camped around the the walls of this big city of Troy. And for ten years, they tried to take the city, and finally, at the end of the story, they take the city. Well, the whole fight of the story in the Iliad is based on uh, one of the a guy, a young man. Uh, uh, one of the king's sons uh, went to Troy as a visitor to stay in their house. And this young man was gifted by one of the goddesses to be the most beautiful and handsome and attractive man that ever lived. And he goes to stay in that house and he meets a young lady named Helen uh, who is the most beautiful lady in all of Troy. And she is the king's wife. And guess what happens? He has an affair with her. And what happens is that whole that whole war was started over a violation of the guest host relationship. He as a guest should have never done something like that. And so in that culture, in that time, it was very important that when you had guests in your home, that you protected them and their well-being was very important. Now, again, it does not excuse the fact that in a minute, Lot is going to offer his two daughters and say, look, go have your way with them. Leave these men alone. But it does show you the amount of respect that was dependent on your ability to take care of your guests. And so they're banging on the doors. They're wanting to get these men let out to them. And what does Lot say? He basically says, you know, yeah. Take my daughters. And so what happens is the angels literally blind these men. But in their passion and in their lust, even when they're blinded, you know, usually if you lose your sight, you're going to be like, hey, I can't see anymore. I'm going to go find a doctor to help me. Like, this is not good. But these men were so driven by their lust that even after being blinded, they continued to try to break into the house. Now you could you see that and you go, well, how could these guys do that? But all of us in this room have struggled with a blindness of lust yeah. in different ways. You know, I get I struggle with the blindness of lust every night when it comes to bluebell ice cream. I always keep some in the freezer and about time it's time to go to bed. I know it's not good to eat ice cream right before you go to bed, but I do like to have a bowl of ice cream. And I do pay for it, you know, I get a gut from eating ice cream. But it's good, and I give in to that. Now, that's just a little simple thing. And I'm saying that not to make light of sin, but all of us in this room know that we have done things in our life where we literally went in knowing that it was going to hurt us. And we just basically said, I don't care. Right? Some of us in this room might still be struggling with habits that we know are destructive to our very physical being, and yet we still embrace them and we still do them. Why? Because we're hard-headed and we're hard-hearted. And somewhere deep down in our debased minds, we think we're, we're the one that's going to get away with it. Yeah. See? And so these men are trying to get into the house and they are struggling to get in and they, they literally want to rape these men. It, it is, the, the city of Sodom was known as an abomination to God. And that's the next thing. So we've talked about hospitality. The next thing I want to talk about is the, the abomination that comes 
uh, is a thing throughout the Bible. Now, a lot of you, if you have, um, I think you'll have several of your guys that come here to teach that are very prophetically minded. They like to teach out of the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel. And y'all have heard the desol- abomination of desolation where they go in and sacrifice the, the pigs in the temple. Y'all have heard that abomination. But I do want to focus on what that word abomination means because it's a filthy word. It means that it's detestable, that it's stomach turning, that it will like, it makes you want to vomit. Like, it's awful. It's ugly. And so, these abominations, what are they? Well, we're going to look at a couple of them in the book of Proverbs, but I'll remind you of this. There's a giant group of people running around in our country today who says that homosexuality, uh, is, that God is, is fine with homosexuality. There's a lot of people in this country that believe that that God that that the Bible was written at a time the Bible was written at a time and that was for their time that don't count for today's time we're different people now and the reality is is that God calls homosexuality an abomination yeah. right. right we have people running around saying they identify as men and they're women right? <laughs> I mean they literally say I feel like a man so I'm going to identify as a man and then I always ask them about that 27 day cycle that comes and say God is identifying you as a woman no matter how you feel and even though you feel like a man you also feel menstrual cramps and there's something that be, should, should be said there God is identifying you as a woman you can feel and dress however you want now you laugh at that but that is a natural fact and these people are so stubborn and hard headed that they're denying that natural fact now, now guys listen I want you to understand, I am not just pointing my finger just at homosexuals. Because sins of lust or sexual sin is sexual sin, no matter if it's between a man and a woman or a man and a man. But the reality is, the God of the Bible labels homosexuality as an abomination. What are some other things that he calls abomination? Incest. Bestiality. Necrophilia. So God lumps homosexuality in with the sins of bestiality, right. incest, and sleeping with dead people. What? That's, no, that's what necrophilia is. Right? So think about that. He's saying that in my eyes, these sexual sins, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, and necrophilia are abominations in my sight. And there is not any of, I hope there's not any of the homosexuals running around in today's world that would say, well, God was not okay with homosexual back then, but he's okay with that now. And he's also okay with incest, bestiality, and necrophilia. See, they won't go that far. It's just their pet sin that they want to say God is okay with now. Right? But it's very important for us to remember that these abominations are things that are filthy in God's eyes. And he hates them. The Bible does say that God hates, and we're going to look at that in just a second. I want you to remember that. God hates those sins. And there's no turning away from it. There's no making it light and, and acting like, oh, God will overlook that. God is not going to overlook it. So, so I'm just having this discussion. You wasn't here, Mike. You wasn't here. Uh, you wasn't here. I kind of brought this up with Ms. I had a run up with a homosexual man. Actually, it was a female that, that was taking male hormones. I told her she was confused, but that's, you know, 
but they do believe that, and, and the, the first thing they, they come, and I, I was trying to explain to them, like, that's like, that's not the way, even though that's acceptable to live in the LGBTABC community. The first thing they throw at me is, you have no right to judge me. They, they misuse that scripture so much. Right. Where they says, uh, now yeah. you're judging me. Yeah. And, and I'd say, you have no right to drag me into your delusion. Yeah, I'm not going to go live in your fairy world. I'm sorry. You know, trust the science, right? Trust the science. That, that, that's a saying nowadays, trust the science. Well, the science is that every 27 days you're going to remind you. Now, and you can take all the uh, hormone therapy you want. It's still not going to change what you're trying to cover up. We're going to see that in just a second. We're going to go to a passage of scripture that talks exactly about that. But when you deal with people in the homosexuality community that tell you that the Bible is not against homosexuality, remember the God of the Old Testament is the very God of the New Testament, and he does not change. His attitude towards sin does not change. Now, again, for all of you in this room who are are definitely not homosexual, you're manly men, I want you to understand that mine and your struggles with lust towards women is just as much an abomination in God's eyes as homosexuality. We need to remember that, guys. It's not for me to look down on other people. If God allows me to see sin in others, it's not so that I can judge them and condemn them. It's so that I can check myself before I wreck myself. Because if I see it in somebody else, it means it's present in my life, too. I want to ask this because I want to make sure I'm not being hypocritical. Because I look at it like this. When I was coming up, we was on the corner selling drugs or doing something red, and we seen an elder come past. We were supposed to put that away because the kids and the elders would come past, don't do certain things in front of them. So if you're a homosexual and you live in an alternative lifestyle, why is it cool for you to brandish shit? Okay, it's you understand what I'm saying? Like, yeah. It was a different, it was like... Okay, so first of all, okay, so first of all, when you were standing on the corner selling drugs and the elders came by and you put them away, you were being a hypocrite. Okay, I understand. You were putting on a mask and pretending to be something that you weren't. Oh, here I am, I'll respect the elders when I'm actually destroying their kids by selling drugs. Okay, that's hypocritical in itself. But <clears throat> sin mocks God. Sin scoffs at God. And, and we'll see this in just a second. We're going to turn there and look. So I do want to look at, uh, turn with me, as we're going that way, turn with me to Proverbs 6. Proverbs chapter 6. We're going to head towards the New Testament and look at a couple of passages. Proverbs chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 16 through 20. Proverbs 6. Verses 16 through 20. It says this. These, there are six things which the Lord hates. So God is love, but God hates. What is it that God hates? Someone who walks with a perverse mouth. One who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet. One who points with his fingers. Who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil. Who spreads strife. Therefore his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly he will be broken and there will be no healing. What does the Lord hate? A proud look, a lying tongue, a heart that devises wicked imaginations. Feet that are swift to run to evil. And right... So you see, there are things that God hates. And so, when it says God hates these things, what it means, these are abominations to God. Sin is an abomination to God. 
And when God was looking down on Sodom and Gomorrah, He was looking down with a divine and righteous anger at these people. And but for His mercy, Lot would have died with them. So even when God is expressing His justice, His mercy is being expressed as well. Because what we're going to see in just a minute is the angel literally, they literally had to grab Lot by his hands and drag him out of the city. Even with all the warnings, even with all the wickedness going on around him, there was a part of his heart that wanted to stay there and did not think that God would judge them. And it's something we all struggle with. But and as you as we continue to turn, look in Isaiah one thirteen. That's just a couple more pages over. Isaiah one thirteen. All right. So we were just talking about all of these wicked homosexuals and these vicious, vile, sinning people. But look what he says right here in Isaiah one. I can get there with you. Isaiah one thirteen. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. Now, incense was reflective of prayer. Right? right? Incense is a symbol of the prayers rising up to God. Uh, incense is an abomination. New moons and Sabbath and the calling of the assembly. I cannot endure your iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. So God is looking down on His own people, the religious crowd, and saying, I'm sick of you. Your fakeness, your hypocrisy, your shed blood on your hands that you're holding up to me trying to offer them in prayer to me, I'm not going to have any of it. So it's not just the homosexuals that are down at the gay club. It's not just the transvestites that are trying to pervert your children. It's the hypocritical religious crowd who are saying one thing with their mouth and believing one thing in their heart. That's what it means to be a hypocrite. A hypocrite, this is Halloween. We're fixing to get to Halloween now. Halloween, you put on a mask and pretend to be something you're not. I hate it. We dress our kids up. They run around and beg for free food. And it's awful to me. Like, you teach your kids to act like something they're not, and they'll get rewarded for it. But a hypocrite is someone who puts on a mask and pretends to be someone they're not. God would rather you just take the mask off and be who you are. So, the heart and the and your your will, your heart and your walk, your will and your walk need to match. What you believe inside of you is going to come out of you, no matter how thick a mask you try to put on. So, what is it God's pointing at? He's pointing at our hearts. And what? So, what is the base? The base sin at the, the bottom of all abomination is idolatry. It's worshiping the creation instead of the Creator. It's setting your heart on the creation and not the creator. That's what idolatry is. It means to pour your emotions, your affections, your love, your will and your walk and your ways and your emotion and everything you are into things that are not of God. It is to worship the creation instead of the creator. And that is the root of all abomination. 
is self over God. It is creation over the Creator. And I want you to look. Well, we'll have to. I don't know if we're going to have enough time. Turn with me to Romans, the book of Romans. And you can share this verse. This is Romans chapter 1. You can share this verse with your friends who says that God's attitude towards homosexuality has changed. All right, so Romans chapter 1. Uh, verse 18, we'll look at verse 18 to 32. It says, For the wrath of God, what is wrath? The anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So, God is angry with men. And in the Old Testament, what did He do? He poured out fire and brimstone and destroyed them. But now this is what it's saying. God is so angry at man... It's no longer that He's pouring out His fire on them and burning them with fire. Now His wrath is expressed in the way that He will just turn us over to our desires. He, that is how he, he said, when God is angry with you, He gives you what you want. Instead of what He wills for you. Alright, so let's see what it looks like when God turns people over to their own desires. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident in them. So, he says that these people are willfully suppressing the truth. That means they, they willfully, they're doing this on purpose. They're suppressing truth. What does it mean to suppress something? You push it down. I always use the examples of the trash can. We suppress the trash because we don't want to take out the trash. Right? We push it down so we can get some more trash in the can. And then I don't have to be the one to take it out. Or we suppress the laundry because we don't want to wash clothes that day. We push the laundry basket down so we can get more clothes in it. Right? To suppress something means to push it down. And so what it says is, these people know there's a God and know that He's going to judge them, but instead of dealing with that, they just suppress it and push it down. I use the example when we were kids. We would stick our fingers in our ear and go, ah, la, 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 I can't hear you. Alright? Well, that is exactly what society is doing today with what we see playing out before our eyes. They're willfully suppressing the knowledge of God. And so what is God doing in His anger? He's turning them over to their own desires. It says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so they are without excuse. Is anybody going to be able to stand before God one day and say, I didn't know? No. No, no one. What about the atheist in the jungle running around with no clothes on that's never seen a missionary or, or, no. or, or met? Is he going to be able to say he didn't know there was a God? No. No. Because all of Adam's kids have an awareness within them. Because they were built by the Creator and made in His image, they know the image bearer. They know the image maker. They know Him. It says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their hearts was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever so what's he saying remember I was telling you about the little guy running around with no clothes on in the jungle that's never met a Christian missionary 
If you go to his community and hang out with him, he will be praying to the moon or to a crocodile or to a tree or to a rock or something because deep down inside of him, he knows that there is a God. And in his sinful nature, he is willfully suppressing that truth because he don't want to deal with the real God. So God made him in his image and then man turns around and gives God the finger and says, I will make you God in my image. My God will look like me and my desires. And that's what you see happening in the world around you. And ladies and gentlemen, I can tell each and every one of you in this room, if you have struggled with drugs and alcohol, drugs and alcohol are both idols. You were serving and worshiping a part of the creation instead of the creator, and God turns you over to those desires and it almost destroyed you. And now watch what he says. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural functions for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also their men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desires one towards another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. All right. You can say what you want to, but AIDS and monkeypox are judgments from God. Yes, for sure. All right. Now, do do heterosexual people get AIDS and monkeypox? Well, with AIDS, for sure. Heterosexual people get AIDS too. You don't have to be gay to get AIDS. Right. But it is primarily a transmitted through homosexual things. It was a judgment from God, and so is this monkeypox thing going around. All right? They're judgments from God. And the world can cake it over and say, oh, no, it's not. But the reality is this. Now, before we go point our finger at all the homosexuals, STDs are a judgment from God for us violating the marriage covenant. These are judgments from God. Sure. And we can say whatever we want to. And we're lucky he had just come down with fire and brimstone. Right. Right? So it says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to depraved minds to do the things which are not proper. So what did God do? He says, okay, you want to be that way? Go ahead. You can be that way. And now scientists have developed the technology to try to help them to be that way. Hormone therapy and surgical things. But guys, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. You can't be God. We are the image bearers. We are not the image maker. And so he says, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil, full of envy and murder, strife, deceit, malice and gossip, they're slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice these things are worthy of death, they not only do them, but they also give hearty approval to others who are practicing the same. Now, what's so cool about that passage that we just read there? God gave them over to unfit mind. They're wicked, greedy, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. You read all this, and you can take that to any culture in any language in the world and read that, and you know what the people in that community will say? Yeah, that's what my neighborhood looks like. 
Go on TikTok. Yeah. That's what it looks like. You see? Why? Because in our depraved human nature, we have willfully expressed the truth of God and God has turned us over to our own desires. And in the end, now we're not going to get to it tonight. Next week, we get uh, next Friday when we get back together, we'll get into Second Peter two, and how we will talk about how God is going to come back again with the fire and brimstone and judge the world. The whole world is going to be judged in the same way that Sodom was judged. And thankfully, we have a merciful God who reaches down into a wicked and vile world like this and saves some of His children, like He did Lot. And prayerfully and hopefully, every one of you in this room can raise your hand and say amen. amen. Right? So we'll close with that tonight. we get back together next week. We'll continue the story. And we'll find out what happens in Sodom. And we'll also compare that to some New Testament passage about God's promise of His wrath to come to the world around us. Amen? Father, thank You for this time together. Thank You for Your love and Your mercy. Thank You for loving us when we were unlovable. I pray that you will help us to continue to see the, our shortcomings and give us the strength and willingness to turn from our wickedness and to trust you and you alone. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.